0: I probably want to actually try to go to sleep at like one i
1: I'm too wired. I can't go to sleep right away. It takes me like an hour.
0: Nathaniel, this is why on live
2: blog nights, as soon as we're done, I pop a melatonin and drink a glass of wine. However, then in the morning, I feel like hung over, basically.
3: When you do that, Galen, especially with the wine, man, that takes you out.
2: Believe me, that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to this early morning primary reaction edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. On Tuesday, seven states held primary contests California, Iowa, Montana, New Jersey, Mississippi, New Mexico, and South Dakota. We're still awaiting some final results, but we have plenty to talk about. Overall, more moderate candidates did well against challengers from the right and left flanks on both sides of the aisle, although there was a sizable protest vote in some instances. Last night also served as a test of the strength of progressive appeals in California's big cities, and they appeared to struggle. Progressive San Francisco D.A. Chase Boudin was recalled in a landslide, and former Republican Rick Caruso advanced to the Los Angeles mayoral general election alongside Democratic representative Karen Bass. There were a couple of surprises throughout the night, notably in Iowa, where once rising Democratic star Abby Finkenauer lost the Senate primary to Mike Franken. The question, of course, remains whether a Democrat has any chance of winning a statewide election in a state that has swung decisively to the right. Here with me to discuss it all is politics editor Sarah Frost Good morning, Sarah. How's it going?
3: Morning. Hey, y'all.
2: How much sleep did you get last night?
3: Well, unlike Jeffrey and Nathaniel here, I I did not have the late night energy uh, last night. So I think I got a solid seven hours. I'll take it.
2: Oh, my God. Okay. You are by far the best rested person on this podcast. We're going to be relying heavily on you today, Sarah. Also here with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. How's it going? Very good. How much sleep did you get? Six hours, I guess. I went to bed at 2.30. Okay. That's not so bad.
1: Yeah. The key is to sleep in.
2: Me too, which is why I'm not showered. If you're watching this on YouTube, I look like an insane person right now. Also here with us is elections analyst
0: Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. How are you? How much sleep did you get? Uh, I got five hours because I woke up at like 715 because I'm a crazy person. And also I had to take my car to get maintenance before this. So, you know, the
2: real world calls. So. There's like so much we can talk about. We're going to try to do the Cliff Notes version of the night, but I want to just begin by asking what your takeaways were from the evening. I tried to outline some of my takeaways, but Sarah, what were your takeaways from the evening?
3: Last night's primaries were really kind of a deep dive on House races. There weren't a lot of statewide races that were super competitive. There was the Democratic Senate primary in Iowa, as you referenced at the top, Galen. But of course, the real question there is, you know, will Franken be able to defeat Grassley come the general? And as we were discussing on the live blog, that's just not likely, particularly in the political environment, looks like we'll be headed in November. But you know, I think the top um, news story coming out of last night is actually the San Francisco recall election, as you were referencing as well. And that I think is because within the Democratic Party, a big trend that I think the media likes to glom on to is anytime there's like a progressive moderate fissure, particularly when a progressive that had been elected like Boudin is then recalled. Earlier this year, there were the, you know, school board elections also in San Francisco, and some of the more progressive members being recalled there. There's a lot happening in California, you know, about how progressive that state wants to be. And I think we saw in a lot of the primaries that, you know, more of the moderate candidates prevailed against some of the progressive challengers who had been running. And I think it's kind of, you know a state that has this reputation of being really progressive. But as we saw in both the San Francisco recall of the district attorney, and then in the Los Angeles mayoral race that, you know, liberalism in California doesn't necessarily mean progressivism.
2: Yeah. Nathaniel, what was your takeaway?
1: I think my big takeaway was how weak some of the showings by incumbent members of Congress were. You know, usually. You don't have to pay attention to their uh, renomination. They win with like 80% or something like that. But you saw a lot of incumbents struggle, even if none of them have lost quite yet. So, for example, in Mississippi's third and fourth districts, it looks like representatives uh, Michael Guest and Steve Palazzo are both going to go to runoffs that they may very well lose, especially in the third district. Um, That's Guest's district. That one really took me by surprise. He voted for the January 6th commission, which is really the only reason I can think of for why there is apparently this discontent with him among the Republican base there. You also saw... Representatives like Dusty Johnson in South Dakota and Chris Smith in New Jersey both get less than 60% of the vote, which is pretty notable. They are more kind of old school Republicans. They both voted to certify the 2020 election, for example. Neither of them we were like seriously thinking would lose. And even last night as the re- results came in, they never were particularly close to being threatened, but it's just a notably weak showing. Um, and then in California, you also had a couple of weak showings that you know some of that can be chalked up to redistricting and, and lines just changing a lot. But David Valadejo, who voted for to impeach Trump, but Trump never really made a concerted effort to defeat him. So people just kind of assumed he was fine, but he's down at like, I think 26% of the vote last I saw, um, which is enough to make the second runoff slot in California, but he's kind of got two Republicans nipping on his heels there and that race isn't called. So even if he survives, that's clearly, you know, kind of a, a show of dissatisfaction for him.
2: And what do we chalk this all up to? Is it mostly the pro-Trump, Trump-skeptical divide within the Republican Party, or is it at all more complicated than that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the fact that these are all Republican representatives, I think, is telling. And they're all kind of more, well, again, like old school Republicans who, you know, maybe they haven't been anti-Trump. You know, these aren't like Liz Cheney or something like that, I guess, with Valadeo being the, the exception. But they aren't true believers, you know, and kind of did things that five years ago wouldn't be considered extraordinary, like voting to certify an election, but now is kind of seen as outside the mainstream in the Republican Party. I do want to say, you know, I think redistricting is an important element of this, not in certain cases like South Dakota, obviously, which wasn't redistricted at all. But I do think it's important to note that a lot of these people like Chris Smith got a lot of new turf in redistricting. And so to many people in in New Jersey's fourth district, Chris Smith is not their incumbent. So that kind of takes away a lot of the usual incumbent. Advantage. Yeah.
3: But to your point, Nathaniel, I thought it was really interesting. Like going back to South Dakota, as you said, not redistricted. Taffy Howard had not raised that much money. And as you were saying, like the race wasn't close, but still got 40% of the vote. And that just kind of, I think, speaks to the primaries here in particular on the Republican side. We have seen more of a Trumpy element. That's not going anywhere. And I think, you know, as members continue to retire from Congress, it's a real question of who the replacement will ultimately end up being. You know, could Taffy Howard win in an environment where Dusty Johnson isn't running? Probably, right?
2: Yeah. All right, Jeffrey, what were your takeaways from last night of what remains from the takeaways after Sarah and Nathaniel have done a great job of setting the table for us?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm actually not sure I have much to add. You know, I also was really interested in the sort of weak incumbent performances, but knowing that redistricting was a factor. But, you know, Michael Guest kind of came out of nowhere in Mississippi's third district for his, his struggles, because that's a district that didn't actually change that much in redistricting. So whereas you have like Chris Smith in New Jersey getting a lot of new turf and his district getting a lot redder, maybe it makes sense that, uh, a more conservative challenger could could get a fair bit of protest vote against him, but for guest to struggle and guest didn't vote to certify the election results, so it's just it's interesting that he performs, just performs so weakly. So I don't know if I have any grand takeaways beyond what what Sarah and Nathaniel have already covered. Well,
2: Jeff, one question I have here, and I don't know if this plays into the weakness of Republican incumbents at all, but one of the themes from yesterday's primaries was Democrats trying to pick their opponents in a way, you know, trying to boost the more Trumpy or more conservative option in districts that would be potentially competitive How successful was that strategy for Democratic candidates?
0: Well, I mean, just a couple immediate thoughts on that. Um, The 5th District in New Jersey is one where that may may have actually panned out for Democrats. You had De Gregorio. Or D. Gregorio, I'm not sure if it's D. or D. De. Uh, De Gregorio. If he's following Italian pronunciation, F- facing Frank Pelota, and Frank Pelota actually was the 2020 nominee for the Republicans against against Josh Gottheimer in this district um, the Democratic incumbent, and Gottheimer won re-election, and Gottheimer and Democrats were actually basically sending out mailers to Republican voters, ostensibly attacking Pelota as being too much like Trump, but clearly that was just a way of Trying to convince Republican voters, hey, you should vote for this guy because he's he's Trumpier. And Peloto looks like he's up by about five. And Dave Gregorio has actually conceded. Dave Gregorio was was favored coming into the primary, had more organizational support in New Jersey, so it was actually kind of unusual for the guy with the county line, as they call it in New Jersey, the New Jersey Republican organization support, who appears to have lost. So maybe that's an example of getting the guy you want. And I know Democrats. You know, in in the in the twenty second district in California, we do not have nearly enough votes there to really know how that's going to pan out. But you know, we're talking about David Valadeo, who voted to impeach Trump. Democrats would really like him to finish third because that's a blue leaning seat. But Valadeo has a track record of winning Democratic leaning seats, and Chris Mathis, the very Trumpy challenger who made his campaign about Valadeo's impeachment vote is not that far behind Valadeo. And Democrats actually, uh, House Majority Pack, the the big outside spending pack for Democrats, actually, they were spending some money supporting Rudy Salas, the lone Democrat running there. But they also spent some money trying to convince Republican voters that they should vote for Mathis instead of Valadeo. And so if Valadeo were to actually finish third, once we get more votes there, which again, we don't have a lot of votes That would be a good example as well.
3: I think it's going to follow closer to, to the 40th district where we do have more votes in California. And it was a similar situation where young Kim running in that district is an incumbent within Congress, but not in that district itself. Only a small percentage, you know, is formally what she represented. Greg Raths was kind of running to her right. Asif Mahmoud, the Democrat who, you know, was at the top of the ticket and will advance, was trying to target Raths, and that didn't really work. So I think- the strategy that Democrats employed, like it, doesn't seem to have really made a lot of dents in the races that they were targeting. But as Jeffrey said, the twenty second is a little too close to call at this point. But I think Valadao will edge it out.
2: So it sounds like this strategy has mixed to not so great results. Is this, you know, and across the whole primary season, we'll have to see. Is this? A somewhat risky strategy for Democrats, given that we expect this fall to be a pretty favorable environment to Republicans. Might they just end up with more conservative or more Trumpy candidates in Congress as opposed to more Democrats?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think the highest profile instance of this so far, the cycle is back in Pennsylvania in the governor's race where Democrat Josh Shapiro was not so subtly trying to encourage Republicans to vote for Doug Mastriano, who, as we've covered on this podcast, is a, attended the January 6th riot and is a big time election denier. In that case, in particular, you know, Pennsylvania governor is a very powerful position. I think maybe you can make the case that it's less risky in like a House seat when you're just one out of 435. And Pennsylvania, is is one of the cases where, you know, it looks like maybe that did make a difference. Mastriano won by a decent amount, but he kind of had the momentum because Trump endorsed him at the end, but he was already had a small lead. And maybe you could argue that that was because uh, Shapiro had helped him by spending all that money for him, quote unquote.
3: Yeah. So, you know, after Mastriano won, handicappers of the Pennsylvania governor's race moved it to lean Democratic. And I think that's notable because it is, I suppose, like refuting what I was saying earlier, that like there is logic in that strategy, because I think part of the idea is for a general election, a candidate who just appeals to such a small portion of the Republican base will not be able to build like a cross coalition that wins. I think what you're seeing in these suburban districts is like a similar kind of logic that if you nominate the really right leaning candidate, that's going to turn off a lot of this isn't the best way to put it, but like fair weather Republican Democrats who kind of, you know, don't really vote for one party either all the time, but really, you know, kind of vote more with their pocketbook maybe. And I think that's what you're seeing, like particularly in the Orange County 40th district and also in New Jersey as well, where Gottheimer was, um, you know, having a Republican challenge there as well. And so it makes sense, but I think they're voters don't necessarily fall for it either, is kind of, I think, what the results reflect from, from last night.
2: Yeah. One question we had going into Tuesday's primaries was, given that there were primaries in California and New Jersey, where we saw a lot of sort of political change over the past decade, basically the suburbs moving quickly to the left during Trump's presidency, and the question remaining whether or not Democrats will be able to hang on to them is there much you can learn from primaries about how motivated either party's voters are to turn out in a general?
0: Yeah, this is a always a conversation point. Um, there's, there are people on election Twitter who love just looking at the totals for each party in primaries. And I do think that you can look sort of carefully at that and say, all right, look, Republican turnout in the 2022 primaries is... Definitely up everywhere, and in some cases by a lot over where it was in the 2018 uh, primaries. But the fact that Democratic turnout is down in some cases, or up even slightly from 2018, it's sort of like, you know, 2018 was a very Democratic-leaning year. So, of course, Democrats were really engaged. Now it looks like 2022 is going to be a Republican-leaning year. So Republicans are pretty engaged. So, like, I don't think there's a lot of added value of digging into that, is sort of my my point here. And I think also you have to be careful with that because if it's a contested race, if there are a lot of contested races on the ballot, but just for one party, which tends to be the one that's really energized because maybe more candidates want to run, you know, more Republicans feel like, hey, I want to run because if I win the nomination, I might be able to win in this environment. You mean more likely to win? That also affects it having more candidates, more engagement. If Democrats have a bunch of uncontested races on the ballot, why are voters showing up? They're not as compelled to show up. So that's like another wrinkle that you have to keep in mind.
3: Yeah. One point you'd made, though, Jeffrey, in your California preview was because it's a top two system there that looking at the vote share for all the Democrats running versus all the Republicans. And I know we're still not nearly you know, enough of the vote in California to kind of draw conclusions. But now that you know tracks relatively closely to the general election. So we might be able to kind of draw something from there. Right.
0: Yes. No, that, that's exactly right. That's where comparing party primaries versus the top two primary, like the top two primary, especially in Washington state, has had a lot of predictive power. California also, to some extent, though, there has tended to be a bit more variation. But at the end of the day, like if Democrats are getting like 55 percent, 56 percent of the primary vote in a district, it's probably a good chance that they're going to win that seat and and the reverse for republicans if it's you know 52 48 for one party you wouldn't want to write the other one off kind of yeah today's podcast is brought to you by shopify
2: ready to make the smartest choice for your business say hello to shopify the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze That I guess brings us to California, which I mentioned the takeaway is that progressives were struggling there, particularly in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Of course, former Republican, you know, real estate developer Rick Caruso leads there overall. Of course, it's a top two primary, so he and Karen Bass will both go to the general election. He got, you know, around 40% of the vote. Karen Bass around 38% of the vote. Can we say very much about what his chances are against Bass in the general election based on turnout last night?
0: I think the difficult question there is that Caruso is going to just keep spending incredible gobs of money. And so I don't want to like sort of rule out the effect that could have. I think it's worth noting that like the third place candidate, Kevin DeLeon, who. Ran for Senate in 2018 and ended up in a Democrat versus Democratic race against Dianne Feinstein. He got like eight, around eight, seven, eight percent of the vote. And you would expect those voters to probably prefer Karen Bass <laughs> over Rick Caruso because Leon's a uh, very much a progressive. But then it starts to get tough because then you have to look at all the different candidates and you wonder where where they're going to go. But then I also wonder about you know there are a lot of people who voted who didn't vote, I should say, uh, in the primary, who will vote in November because primaries don't get nearly the same turnout as a general election. So you can see reasons why Caruso might lose, but you also like don't want to write it off at all that he could very well win this race with, with the kind of money he's able to throw at it.
3: Yeah. And I, I mean, thematically, Galen, as you're kind of getting at, crime was also a central issue in Los Angeles. And depending on how crime continues to rise or not rise in cities across the U.S., that will be a factor moving into November. And Los Angeles actually had seen more violent crime than San Francisco, which is really interesting considering the wide margin in which Boudin was recalled from office when things are, you know, arguably worse in L.A. And what's interesting too is like, to some extent, Caruso and Bass have the same message that they want to, you know, reduce homelessness, make sure that people are safe, but the way in which they talk about it is very different. And I think Caruso, because he doesn't have a background as being a Democratic legislator in the way that Bass does, is much more just like, I'll throw money at the problem. I'll put a lot more police on the streets. And I think if you're fed up with the status quo, that sounds really appealing. But, you know, it's only June. It's a long way away from November.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that Los Angeles was so much of a repudiation of progressivism. You know, maybe it depends on kind of your like initial expectations were. But as Maya Sweedler and I wrote for the site yesterday, Los Angeles is a very politically diverse place. And just because it is deeply democratic doesn't mean it is super progressive. You know, there are more moderate Democrats and there are more progressive Democrats. And I think that Caruso, especially given how much he spent, you know, the amount that he got is about in line with what I would expect. And it still is, I think, well shy of the roughly 60% of people who voted to to recall Boudin. So, and, and also Bass wasn't running as like a true progressive. She was just kind of like a regular liberal, kind of more like a Joe Biden type. There was one kind of true progressive in the race, but she was pulling at only like 2% and didn't have any money and stuff like that, which I guess that is a bit more of an indictment of the progressivism. But I just don't think that they didn't really have a candidate in the race.
3: Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like we're so often dismissive of a lot of money going into an election. It's not necessarily telling who will win. Like, otherwise, Mike Bloomberg would be president, right?
1: Yeah. But he was mayor. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but to, to some extent for Caruso, like, yes, he spent a lot of money. Yes, he was on the airwaves. But I think it might be tapping into something else as well.
0: Well, I mean, look, a campaign is a confluence of various factors. You know, so Caruso has maybe chosen the right time to run based on his profile and, and sort of the sentiments of voters right now. But I think the money is a huge factor in why he's going to be in the general election in November um, and not like just some, some random guy. (laughs) That's a big factor in a local race, especially one that's like ostensibly nonpartisan. Like, you know, voters are looking at the ballots, not like they had D and R on the ballot by the name of the candidate, which is also something to keep in mind. It's like a little different from the rest of the races we're talking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, in the Los Angeles area, there are some examples, too, of progressives challenging incumbent Democrats, maybe notably the 34th Congressional District, where David Kim is running to rematch with incumbent Jimmy Gomez this fall. Jimmy Gomez beat him by six points in 2020. Right now, with only 40% of the expected vote reported, Jimmy Gomez has 52%. David Kim has 36%. Is there anything we can say about races like that in California? Did progressives come up short? Is it too early to say? Do we kind of have to wait till the general?
1: That's interesting, Galen. I feel like that race, the Gomez-Kim race is more along racial lines. That's a district, if I recall correctly, that has a large Hispanic and Asian American population. So I think that that, that might be the division there.
2: Although, I th- like To be fair, Kim is basically saying Jimmy Gomez isn't a real progressive. He takes money from prisons. Oh, really? You okay. know, it's got a lot of the sort of – I think you called him a faux-gressive. I don't know if that's been used elsewhere. But it has a lot of the same messages that you see in other races where progressives are challenging the quote-unquote establishment.
3: And think about what happened in the 8th District. You know, very blue. It was a very – Big question though, like as the district got bluer, would a moderate like Garamendi be able to advance? What would the protest vote look like? And we were talking about that earlier on the Republican side. I think there was a difference in what the protest vote looked like among Democrats. Nobody was like forced to a runoff. I know we were talking about California 22nd and maybe that being an example of this, but like that again was a Republican versus Democrat challenge. Like I don't think we've seen the same close competitiveness, at least in last night's primaries. I think there's a difference when you look at the Texas 28th, for instance, but looking at California's races, it just wasn't as close as some of the like Republican on Republican challenges.
1: Yeah, I think I I was focusing more on Los Angeles. I'm not sure Los Angeles is telling us all that much, but I agree that in the rest of the state, like progressive struggle, I think also of the 13th district, where the leading vote getter was um, Democrat Adam Gray, who's a more moderate voice in the state assembly. Phil Arbio, who's the, I'm, I'm not sure he would like identify as like a Sanders progressive, but he was running to Gray's left. He is currently in uh, third place with 19 percent of the vote. That race hasn't been called, but it looks like he's not going to make the the runoff.
2: So let's test the narrative at this point. I think. A lot of folks are going to be focusing on the recall of Jason Boudin in San Francisco. You know, I don't know how many people will focus on the nitty gritty of the house races in the rest of California, but we just have. What should we make of all of this? Deep blue California isn't as progressive as you think. It's just a particular moment in time where a confluence of issues have aligned that are taking priority that don't necessarily negate some of the other progressive values of the state, like focusing on things like climate change or wealth disparities or whatever else it may be? Or is it like, you know, Kansas, you go so far to the left or the right that people reject it and you end up with some, you know, decisions that seem contrary to the state's overall partisan lean. Those are three narrative options. Maybe uh, choose your own adventure here. What should we make of all of it?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical of the last one because for the most part the Democrats in California I mean, we, I, mean I think we've talked about this before it's like California Democrats are not necessarily like super left wing. I mean I think there's a stereotype that they are, but you know, thinking about that like 13th district race, Alex Padilla and Gavin Newsom were backing Adam Gray, the moderate in the race. The Democratic Party of California has traditionally been pretty establishment So, yes, you can maybe cherry pick the recall in San Francisco as evidence of this. But I just I think uh, I don't think it's really an example of like everybody going too far left. I mean, there may be single instances of it.
2: Wait, if California isn't left wing, then who is like, what is the standard then for what is like progressive or left wing or what have you?
0: Well, I just think it's easier to look at it as like probably individual cities, because I don't know, statewide politics. I mean, you know, if you're talking about like New York, another really blue state, like what you call Kirsten Gillibrand, left wing. I mean, I, she's pretty liberal, but within like sort of the bounds of like the center left to left of the Democratic establishment. She's not like an Ocasio-Cortez, you know.
1: Yeah, I think it's much more about, like, individual politicians. and Obviously, you have, like, somebody like Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, Cortez, who are progressives, but it's hard to paint such a broad brush for a state Vermont
0: party. Vermont is your answer. Yeah,
1: yeah, Vermont's <laughs> not ter- terrible, I guess. But, but yeah, I mean, California, you know, I, I agree with Jeffrey. You know, I think, Galen, you know, the closest thing to the truth is what you said, which is that, like, Democrats in California and across the nation are complicated, and they are progressive on some issues, but not on others. I think we learn this in 2020, when there were a bunch of progressive slash liberal ballot measures uh, in California that didn't pass. So they kept their ban on affirmative action in place. They voted with Uber and Lyft to kind of keep their employees as independent contractors, which capped the benefits they could get. Um, And they did all this by, you know, voting while voting for Joe Biden by like a two to one margin. So again, I just don't think it's it's that surprising. You know, I think that the Boudin Recall, um, you know, fits into that pattern, but it also clearly, I think, reflects just like dissatisfaction within an individual city. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, the, the school board recalls earlier this year. It seems like San Franciscans just like generally are not and happy with the way things are going. And I'm not sure that is super extrapolatable out.
3: I'll get a little grand for you, Galen.
2: Go for it, Sarah.
3: I think we're at this moment in our politics where both parties' bases are moving in more extreme directions. However, what you're seeing play out in the primaries, and I think that speaks a lot to the type of districts these candidates are making their bets in, is on the Republican side, a challenge to the right if it is a district that is fairly rural, you have a good success at overtaking the more moderate challenger. Doesn't mean it was always successful, as we saw last night. But then on the flip side, what we're seeing on the Democratic side is where more of these progressive challenges are happening, there tend to be in more suburban areas that often will have a highly educated college elite class, as well as a racially diverse class. I think, though, in this moment, it's different than 2018, where we saw a lot of victories for the progressive movement in both 2018, to some extent, in 2020. There does seem to be at least some backlash happening to that. But I think it, you know, it's foolhardy to write that off. I think things are going to continue to point in different directions. Like, even if Cisneros doesn't win against Cuellar in the 28th, she came really close, and we can't discount that. And I think that's the future that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party continues to head in, just more and more competitive challenges um, and from really different wings of the party.
1: I mean, I take your point, Sarah, that, you know, the left wing and the right wing of the Republican Party are kind of bubbling up. But I, I do think that the right wing or like the Trumpy wing, let's say, because you know traditional left right spectrum is somewhat confounded by Trump, is clearly like has captured the hearts and minds of the Republican base. and Not
3: in New Jersey. I mean, I, I think it depends on the area.
1: Right, but, like, overall, like, Trumpy candidates are doing...
0: I don't know. Frank Palota won, and, yeah. uh, you know, Chris Lee got less than 60%. I don't know.
1: In open seats, like, you know, and, like, clearly candidates feel like they need to cozy up to Trump in order to win Republican primaries. Yeah. And I just think on the Democratic side, like the kind of the left wing is not winning that fight overall like they have some sporadic victories they're kind of snowballing up you know you we've seen groups like our revolution try to be a little bit more targeted and and unambitious in how they um have approached things but overall i think the energy in the republic or in the democratic party excuse me clearly remains with the the more mainstream joe biden types
3: I I wouldn't phrase it as energy. I agree with you that that's where the power remains. But I think the energy and how the party is framing itself is coming from the more left-wing base. And that is kind of how the party is perceived. And I think that has a lot of power, even if it isn't translating to seats in Congress.
2: You know what we need to resolve this? An open 2024 presidential Democratic primary.
3: Yes.
0: You know, this seems like perhaps another another instance of sort of asymmetry between the two parties um
3: i think you're right it is asymmetrical but it's going to become more symmetrical i don't know about that we'll see see.
0: (laughs) i'm skeptical that it's going to become more symmetrical i I mean i think
1: it could go either way but i think right now the democrats i just think
0: progressives struggle to broaden especially among voters of color and i think that's going to continue to be a real problem for them that's going to limit their appeal broadly speaking within the party
2: Yeah, because isn't the Democratic Party more ideologically diverse than the Republican Party? And so it's easier to, like, distill the ideological message of the Republican Party in an extreme way and still get the rest of the party. Whereas when you do that on the Democratic side, you end up alienating a lot of voters.
3: There's been some evidence, though, that, like, Democrats are shifting more in that direction. You're right, though, that it is a bigger tent party. It's more coalitional. I just I don't know. Extreme partisan hatred, you know, yields extreme candidates. Well,
2: and I think there is a fight in the Democratic Party right now, and we don't know who's going to win yet. Progressives in the next five to ten years could end up winning that fight. I think that it's only recently that more moderate Democrats feel empowered to actually directly challenge progressives on some of these, like, social issues and crime and things like that. And— we have yet to have a big showdown where voters get to weigh in on who they prefer. Do they like the version of San Francisco mayor London breed who is, you know, at a BLM rally and talking about defunding the police, or do they like the version of her who's like standing up at a press conference, declaring a war on crime in the city and saying like, she's had enough bull. So, you know, in many ways, voters haven't weighed in yet on what vision they want for the party. I mean,
1: they, they obviously they have in some races, but also there are many, many races to come. So, like, yeah, I, I agree, Galen, this is like a very long term proposition for both parties.
3: You know, at the same time that Boudin is recalled in San Francisco by a really large margin, you know, another progressive district attorney last summer who we thought were, was going to potentially be in trouble, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, wins. So it, it is a conflicting storyline. And I don't mean to try to oversimplify it. I think it's asymmetrical, as Jeffrey was saying. But I just think this outsider appeal of candidates could perhaps be one future of politics. And I think generally speaking, more progressive candidates fit in that mold than a moderate establishment one in the Democratic Party. And that holds appeal for some people.
2: Also, If the moderate ranks of Democrats get hollowed out in competitive districts in 2022, that will have the knock-on effect of the remaining lawmakers being more progressive in bluer seats and the party becoming, like, more extreme as a result. And then, actually, the Republican Party having more people defending, you know, competitive seats and potentially moderate lawmakers. So sometimes the pendulum swings. I don't know if that will be the case here, but... Rick, did you look like you're going to say something?
1: Well, I, I don't want, I don't mean to keep going around in circles, but like, to me, I think, I think that's actually a good point, right? Is that like, I think that like in a year like 2018, when all the moderates in the Republican Party get eliminated, you really are left with just the Trumpy people for the most part. I think for Democrats, the difference is Democrats are still nominating moderate candidates, even in safe seats, which you don't see a lot with Republicans in their safe seats anymore. That's basically the
0: encapsulation of what I'm arguing. That's a good point. Right. And again, I think that gets back to some of the the racial and ethnic components of the Democratic Party. You know, you'll have like a David Scott in Atlanta area who has a very moderate reputation, but in a super blue seat. Right. So in theory, you could have someone, ex- you know, very, very progressive in that seat. And you absolutely do not. So I think that's like an important thing to keep in mind with this.
3: Sure. But remember, a lot of the squad got to Congress because of both like college educated elite voters and because they were able to appeal to voters of color in their respective districts. I just think the national environment's a little different this time.
0: Yeah, I guess for me, it's like I think about someone like Eric Adams in New York City and how I, again, continue to think that the progressive appeal has limits that are going to sort of wash up against... Sure, is that they can't they can't get the tide far enough in because they struggle to appeal uh, to voters of color. Like I guess someone like Ocasio Cortez and some presidential race down the line maybe could change that. I don't know. Bernie Sanders wasn't the guy who was going to do that, you know, in the twenty twenty presidential contest. So you know, again, I candidates also are important um, and can change things uh, on that front too.
2: All right. Well, as with almost everything we talk about on this podcast. It's an ongoing question, and we're going to find out, and we're going to talk about it when we know the answer. As just a final point, are there any races that we would just be total idiots to not mention before we close out this podcast?
1: I will be very on brand and mention the ballot measure in South Dakota, Constitutional Amendment C, which would have... Increased the threshold for future ballot measures to pass to 60%. Now, this is interesting because it was put on the ballot by the Republican legislature ostensibly to block a, another ballot measure that's coming up this November to expand Medicaid in the state. And they wanted to make that harder. But Constitutional Amendment C uh, failed. So, as a result, in November, Medicaid expansion will still only require a bare majority in order to win. And that's something that a lot of red states have done by, via ballot measure in recent years. So you'd have to think that uh, that has a decent chance of passing in South Dakota now, whereas it, it might have been an underdog if it had been required to reach
0: 60%. And I'll just mention in a couple races we were watching last night, the first district in Montana, since it has two districts again now, uh, Ryan Zinke, who was the, the interior secretary for, for Trump and resigned sort of with some scandal hanging over him, decided he wanted to return to the House. And so he was running for the, this new House seat. He has about a one-point lead in the first district Republican primary over Olszewski, who was sort of more conservative, but Zinke does have Trump's endorsement. I mean, I, it's, it's kind of hard to, to parse the differences there. Olszewski maybe is just sort of an outsider type, but he's, but he's run for office a lot. He's a former state legislator. And that race is, I think, closer than we expected. Uh, the fact that that it's not called yet, Zinke has a narrow lead. I think the numbers that are outstanding there would suggest that he probably will win. But it's close enough that there could be a surprise. And I'll also mention that in the 7th District in New Jersey, Tom Kane Jr. won the Republican primary there. But sort of getting to some of the conversations we were having, uh, Kane very much sort of seen as like about pretty much uber establishment type of Republican And there was actually a New York Times article uh, just before the primary about how his campaign strategy was essentially silence, like he just was not talking to the press about very much, probably because he's not a super Trumpy Republican. And he was running against at least a couple guys who were trying to get to his right. One of them was Phil Rizzo, who was sort of the premier Trump candidate in the 2021 New Jersey gubernatorial primary on the Republican side. And uh, Kane is at about 46%. So he didn't win a majority, but in a state like New Jersey, you don't need to worry about runoff. So he, you know, he won, he won by a sizable margin, but in a crowded field.
2: All right. Well, I think that about does it. So thank you, Sarah, Nathaniel, and Jeff. This was a fun conversation.
3: Thanks, Joe.
0: Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen. Thanks, everybody.
2: My name is Galen Droop, Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Emily Vineski is on audio editing, and Chadwick Mallon is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.
3: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.